Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard. Hey, man. Well, we first saw you as a keynote at Firemanship last year in Portland, but uh, it's good to have you on. You know, you've described your training and time in the military and, uh, you know, credited realistic training to saving lives in that line of work. I mean, how important is that really? Because that's something in our line of work that's that we preach is like practice how you play. Uh, so the, the realistic training that we did in the SEAL teams, I can, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, saved lives. People tend to say, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'll rise to the occasion or, hey, my adrenaline's going to kick in. And I can tell you personally, that is not even close to being the case. Uh, you rise to the level of your training. It is our duty to train as hard as we can. And as instructors, it is our duty to train our men as hard as we can and then continuously push them to the next level. And the, the hard realistic training that we had in the SEAL teams absolutely saved lives. We would have guys come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and say, you know what? That was nothing compared to the training you guys put us through. I'm so glad you guys put us in these situations because it did this, this, and this. That's an extremely rewarding feeling is when somebody tells you, you know, hey, if we wouldn't have done this in training, I don't, I don't know if we would have made it through that scenario. Or, hey, because you opened up our eyes to this type of a situation, you know, the guys were able to push through and, and, and make it happen. And so, you know, realistic training is, uh, is critical. Hard training is critical. And, and how that relates to what you guys do, it's no different. You guys should be in top physical shape at all times. You guys should be training every single day. And it doesn't have to be crazy elaborate training because I know we work with departments all across the nation and, and, and companies and, you know, corporate companies, same issues, you know, all across the nation. Like, oh, we don't have budget for training. You can do some sort of training that costs absolutely no money. Uh, I talk to police officers and they're like, you know, ammo's expensive, range time's expensive. I say, you know what, guys, I understand 100%. How much does it cost for you to dry fire your weapon? Nothing but time. And for what you guys are doing in the, as firefighters, uh, there's drills that you guys can be running that cost nothing but time. It's just going to take time and effort and discipline. You know, and that's the biggest thing that I will say kind of sets us apart from everybody else is our discipline in our everyday training. Uh, we realize that it has to happen. And the thing that I loved about the SEAL teams is guys kept each other accountable so that guys were always pushing and always training and say, hey, man, we're going to go to the range, get your gear, come on. And somebody tries to get out of it, and that's not even close to being an option. It's like, no, get your gear. We're going to the range. This is what we're going to do. So uh, hard, realistic training is is critical. It'll keep your guys alive. How do you deal with pushback, though, from others? You know, if you're planning, prescribing training, you know, where Craig and I come from, I mean, like we're on a crew that we really don't have to deal with any pushback. You know, we're surrounded by a lot of people that want to be there. If, if one guy is – you know, not really there during the day, you know, just, just not feeling it. Somebody else steps up and pushes not only that guy, but the entire crew to do something. You know, if anybody brings an idea, it's well accepted. But 
buy-in so important, how do you answer to pushback when people aren't bought in? So you tend to get pushback when people don't understand why you're doing something. You know, that's a big thing, you know, from, from training to planning for a mission for, you know, a financial company trying to bring on more sales, not understanding why they got to go into a market or, you know, a, a parent dealing with their kids. It's how you relay the mission. And part of the mission is your guys' training so that you can accomplish the mission. You have to be able to sit down and properly explain why that training is so important. And what you have to realize is just because you think you're explaining something well enough, it doesn't mean that it's properly being understood. You need to get feedback from your guys and actually and ask those challenging questions and engage with them. And then the thing that also really helps, give them ownership. Give them ownership of the training and say, hey, you know what? This is a training that we have going on. Uh, hey, JP, I want you to be in charge of this training. Hey, I know you got a little pushback. You don't think this training is important. You know what? I want you to design a block of training that you think is going to be important, that you think is going to be you know, critical to our success and, and pushing us to the next level. So you need to give ownership to everybody in your unit when it comes to training. And that's what we would do. We would literally give new guys the opportunity to do the mission planning, new guys to be the, you know, they were acting like they were the task unit commander or they were acting like they were the officer in charge and, you know, it's their first platoon and they haven't even done a full workup. But we put them in those positions of leadership during training and that's how we would help keep our guys engaged and keep our guys driven. I mean, even in the SEALs where you're dealing with the 1% of the 1%, are there still holdouts? I mean, I know that we see that in our profession where you have people who are, you know, quote unquote, dialed in. And then the other people who it seems like no matter what approach you take, they're unreachable. Yeah, no matter what you do, like you're not going to get them. Like 20% top performers and you really don't have to worry about them. You don't have to push them. They're the ones pushing. You have that middle 60% that you're focusing on and that bottom 20, there's just, it seems like there's no hope. Yeah. I mean, are those ratios the same in the SEALs? 100%. And, and, and I'll rewind a little bit as to what you just said. Uh, yeah, we, we do have the top percent of guys that want to make it there, but there's always the bottom feeders in every organization. And just because somebody's a SEAL doesn't mean that they're a good person. Just because somebody's a SEAL doesn't mean that they're going to be a hard worker. It doesn't mean that they're always going to be engaged. It doesn't mean that they're always going to put others before themselves. I mean, we have to get rid of guys in the SEAL teams regularly. The one thing that I, I'm very proud of the SEAL teams is they maintain the standards at all times. It is constantly being maintained a, a, of a high standard. And uh, there is just some people that, you know what, they may be a great person, but they don't need to be in the SEAL teams. I don't need that guy deploying with me downrange because you know what? He doesn't take training serious. He's selfish. He doesn't put in the extra time. And he gets by the bare minimums at all times. You know what? That guy's going to get somebody killed. And in your guys' line of work, the bare minimums should never be accepted. You yeah. guys should constantly be holding the line and raising the standards. Yeah, I like to call those people nice guys. Hey, man, he'd be a great neighbor. He'd oh, be awesome he... to live by, barbecue with, but I just don't want to go to war with him. I don't even know if I'd like him as a neighbor anymore. <laughs> Why? Just because no. he's... <laughs> well, it's like, what? Ha... well, you know, it's, what if shit comes to your block, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're the ones that have like nine broken down cars in their parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> yeah. 
How would you suggest people deal with someone who you feel like you're just stuck with that problem for like 30 years? I mean, in other industries, you're based on your performance. You could lose your job. But it seems like once you get into the fire service, maybe it's the same in the military, but once you get in the fire service, it's really hard to lose that spot. So I I believe that in order for you to truly be able to influence somebody, you have to build a relationship with them. So if you're having somebody who just is not engaged, does not care about training, does not ever contribute to the team, it's going to go against everything that you want to do. But, you you know, you need to take the time to develop a relationship with that individual. So that way, when you have conversations and you're actually addressing their shortcomings and their shortfalls and saying, hey, you know what, you're not toe the line here. Hey, you know, you haven't made it to any of the training. And hey, JP, it's really affecting the team. When you don't do this, you're making it harder for Mike and Benny and Wes and Rico and Derek to get the job done. And, you know, if you could really step up and just help out a little bit on training or if you can contribute to this and this, it would make a difference. When you have a relationship with somebody, those conversations are easier to have and they have a greater impact. Now, when you just go to somebody, they always feel like you're just harping on them and hitting them hard, hard, hard and complaining. They're naturally going to be defensive and they're not going to retain anything that you say, nor will they care. You know, if some stranger came up to you and critiqued the way you dressed, would you care? Probably not. However, if one of your buddies was like, hey, bro, uh, nobody wears fanny packs anymore. Like, you shouldn't (laughs) wear that. And you'd be like, oh, okay, maybe I'll take my fanny pack off. You know, I mean, I know that's a silly, uh, you know, comparison, but, you know, I'm just thinking of all the times, like, where we've had in training guys that just weren't engaged. And that's because they felt like they were kind of outside of the circle. Now, granted, they put themselves outside of the circle. But, you know, as a leader, you have to recognize that and know when you need to build those relationships and draw those guys back in, give them a part of the team and get them engaged and, and give them give them ownership. What would you say were some qualities that you looked for in a leader, like in order to follow them, in order to buy into them? You know, because even all of us, we lead in some aspect of our lives, but there's always something in our life that we're a follower, always a, a point in time in our career that we were a follower. So we're always looking for buying. You know, I, I, I'm a promoted officer now as a captain. I still lead, but I also have to follow too. So we're all followers, I think, maybe all the time. I don't know. Well, I think it's. I think those people make the best leaders are the ones who are willing to follow someone else. They kind of realize like, hey, I buy in to this thing because of the approach of the leader. And so when I need to lead people, I need to make sure I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what would you look for? What did you look for when you're in the military? You know, when you had, when you had a boss to work for, what were some of the qualities you look for? I, I look at a guy like Jocko who was engaged all the time. He was that ideal leader that you looked for. He was physically fit. He was very intelligent. He was passionate about training. He took care of the guys and he allowed no slack. And the reason why he allowed no slack is is because he knew that we had to be dialed in at all times. Jocko also gave ownership to everybody in our task unit. And he encouraged us to step up and lead. And he told us, hey, when you do this, you're probably going to screw up. You're going to fail. But that's okay. And we're going to be here to help you grow 
and learn as a leader. And it was pretty awesome when my boss's boss was telling me to take ownership of everything that affected the platoon, the task unit, and all my duties. It was just incredibly empowering. You know, I was only 21, 22 years old at that time. And he was telling me, JP, I want you to step it up. I want you to be more aggressive. You know, you have influence with the guys. They listen to you. You push them. You drive them. You hold each other accountable. I want you to take ownership of everything. You know, and that, that's the type of leader I always looked, looked for, you know, and, and compared all the other ones that I worked with. And I've worked with some really good leaders and I worked with some really bad leaders. And the really bad leaders that I worked with did not give ownership. And the reason why they didn't give ownership is because they were insecure because they realized that maybe if they gave ownership to somebody else, it would show their weakness as a leader and they would lose their ability to be in that position. You know, a good leader doesn't care. It's all about the team winning. And a good leader is going to look to replace himself. They're, the job of a leader is to build up the leaders around them and to build up their subordinate leaders so that they can grow and either get promoted up or promoted out to something else. You mentioned winning. I mean, a winning mindset is key to be successful, I think, anything in life, daily life. But really, how important is it? How important is you know, showing up every day like we talk about waking up, working and having that winning mindset. It's, it's, it's so incredibly powerful. That mindset you have to have at all times, you know, and, you know, and winning at all costs is a mindset that you should have, but you have to be able to balance that winning at all costs. Because if you go to the extreme of winning at all costs, then you're going to lose everything. And when you lose everything, you gain nothing. So you have to have that balance and figure out what that dichotomy is for you as an individual. You have to be able to give up stuff. You have to be able to sacrifice. You have to be disciplined with your everyday actions if you want to win. Discipline equals freedom. That's something that Jocko has always talked about. It's something we talk about at Echelon Front. Leif and Jocko doing a phenomenal job working with other companies, and so does the rest of the team. Discipline truly equals freedom. If I want to get better on the range, I have to be disciplined with my everyday actions on the range. Is my draw perfect? Is my grip perfect? Is that trigger pull perfect? Am I doing my reloads the right way? If I want to lose weight and get in shape, I have to be disciplined with my everyday actions when it comes to my diet. What am I actually doing at the gym? Am I pushing myself to my limit every time I work out? As I'm trying to grow as a leader and learn, am I, de am I being disciplined with my studies? Am I being disciplined with reading? Am I being disciplined with engaging with my team and developing relationships and, and, and giving them ownership and learning and looking outside the box so that I can take my team and protect my team and bring them to the next level? This is where the dichotomy of leadership like really hits home for me. It's getting people to realize that when they go after a win, it might and most often leads to some sort of failing. And so having this nice balance of almost appreciating the failures because you know that that is getting you a little bit closer to, to your goal. I mean, it's, the part, it's the journey, right? It's the process. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, enjoying that kind of the obstacle is the way. You're enjoying the process, and that process is, is losing. I mean, we have a, a person who's going through their paramedic FI right now, and we had a bad call yesterday, didn't go well. And he comes up to me afterwards. He's like, dude, I hate this. Like, I hate sucking at stuff. And I'm like, well, you do suck. 
Like that's where you're at in this path. And to take something as complex as being a paramedic, you're never going to get to that point where, you know, you walk in and you feel like, hey, no matter what, I'm going to knock this out of the park. Because the second you think that, you're going to stop trying. Yeah. yeah, I think the fire service struggles a big part with uh, lead by example. I mean, man, it seemed like the first five or ten years I was a firefighter, that's all I heard when I went to some classes, like lead by example, lead by example. And it just became like this cliche. There was there was no meat behind it. You know, it was just like something we say. It's kind of like some of the mission statements. You know, it's just everybody's choosing buzzwords. But Yeah, but regardless of whether you're trying to or not, you are leading by example. Your example might be dog shit, which is, you know, you are teaching those people underneath you that that is acceptable. So even if you're even if it's not positive, you're always leading by example. Yeah, but it goes back to the buy in we were talking about. How do you create buy in? I mean, it comes with showing the way, which which to me, that's lead by example, showing the way, not just telling the way. Telling the way is just lip service, you know? Right, but you're leaving a path, regardless of whether it's yeah. a good one or bad one. Yeah, that's true. And even when I was an instructor and we we're at Trade It, you know, some people might look at that and be like, well, you're kind of on the sidelines, you're in a coaching role, you're an instructor. And yes, that's right. But guess what? As instructors, we were in the game. We were constantly tweaking our tactics. We were constantly training. We were training as much as the guys in the SEAL teams were. We were going to shooting schools. We were going to let, you know, different schools to improve our techniques and just improve our overall game. Because my mission as an instructor was to provide the absolute best training for my guys so that I didn't have to put on my dress blue uniform and go to another damn funeral. That was my job. And at first, I wasn't happy about being out of the teams and in an instructor role. But when I realized that that was my new mission, I took it as serious, if not more serious, than as when I was in a platoon. Because I had to give those guys everything. And I, did I give them everything at all times? No. I'm human. I fail. I fail every single day. But I had a good circle of other instructors that kept me accountable. I kept them accountable. And as a team we were able to elevate that training to the next level. You mentioned that you wanted to be a RAF guide growing up. How important are male role models in your life? And, and did you have any other ones besides your dad? Yeah, I mean, was there one in particular? Or maybe your dad was also this one that pushed you into the military too. But was there any in particular that pushed you into the military or while you were in the military itself? You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I would have gone on that path. You know, at the time I was a... I was just, you know, I was an 18-year-old punk kid like we all are when we're 18, right? Or I would say for the most most part, you know, there are those select few that are, you know, have that super high drive and they know what they want. And, you know, I was at a weird place at that time. You know, my dad and I were butting heads a lot and we're arguing and I just, you know, I saw my buddy, you know, he had this, what I thought was an awesome life, you know, and it's, you know, he had a cell phone bill and that's it. You know, he camped by the river every day. He's a whitewater rafting guide. You know, he was tan, he was in great shape, and he, he, he was just putting money in savings. And I was like, man, that's awesome. But I'm obviously so incredibly thankful that my dad pushed me. And I've always kind of pushed myself, and I push myself harder when those, when I know someone's kind of looking to me to accomplish something. Like, I want to make those around me proud. So as far as the strong male influence, it's incredibly important, you know, and I mean, I'm not an expert on any, on any of this, so I don't want to, 
you know, go down the path talking about, you know, the effects of male influence in, in kids' lives and not. But, I mean, there's a lot of studies out there that prove that, you know, kids need the men and women in their lives. You know, that's one of the things I love that we have our kids in jujitsu, and I travel a lot, and I'm gone. And I love the fact that when I'm gone on the road, my wife is able to take my kids to jujitsu, which is teaching them life skills, is teaching them humility, is teaching them hard work, is teaching them to be honest, to, to give everything that they've got, and to work with others and, you know, and help those around you. But the thing that I love is that there is a strong male influence in my kids' life consistently. If I'm gone, they're getting at the gym. If I'm gone, they're getting it at church. If I'm gone, they're getting it with my best friends who they'll come over to the house and hang out with, you know, and their wives or my wife's best friends. And, you know, they, they discipline and correct my kids just like I do. They'll tell my kids, hey, stop doing that. Hey, put that away. Hey, listen to your mom. Hey, stop doing that. Hey, you know, it's time for you guys to get ready for bed. That is so incredibly important to be able to have that. I don't necessarily think that it has to be a dad providing all of that guidance. I mean, I know for me personally, my mom provided a lot of that in my life. And even though I think it's really important to have like masculine and feminine role models in your life, I do think that some other people can can give you that if, you know, you're in a situation where your kid might not have that. Yeah, it could be a coach. You Absolutely. Know, be a somebody coach. who is a pillar. You need these pillars and it, it doesn't stability. Have to be. But you also need consistency. Consistency, um, but I do think there is a lot of benefit to having a masculine version of how to grow up. Yeah, you know, it, it just as important as a feminine version. Yeah, like I was saying, like I didn't want to say anything that would cause like issues with anybody out there because I know plenty of you know women that are raising their kids all by themselves, and you know those kids are going to be incredibly impactful. And I, I have buddies in the SEAL teams that were literally raised by their grandparents or their grandma all alone or, you know, just by their mom. Same thing, work three jobs to support them, and they're absolute rock stars. I think that strong influence is, is critical. And if you can have a strong influence from a male and female, uh, that's even better of a combination. Yeah, that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. And now, is the best of both worlds always going to happen in life? Nope. <laughs> you know, you just gotta, gotta make it work. You gotta push and you gotta drive deep, you know, and obviously you doing what you've done and the drive that you have, you were able to find that with, from within. And here's the thing, you know, guys come through training and we, I mean, we have Olympic caliber athletes that go through buds and they quit the first day or they quit the first week or they quit in hell week. It is solely up to you to decide what you want in life. You know, I just made a post on uh, on Instagram. You know, I heard this quote, and I took a picture of it and taped it to my computer. And it says, nothing matters but your will to succeed. It doesn't matter your sex. It doesn't matter your race or, you know, your upbringing or your social status. None of that matters. It is fully up to you to succeed. Yeah, you went from raft dreams to something way bigger in life it, it it's like finding your purpose a hundred percent yeah i did it i did a podcast with andy frisella on the the mf ceo project and they actually titled that podcast impact over income and you know in the military you know we don't make a lot of money uh we make 
decent money. I mean, hey, it's a paycheck the first and 15th of every month. That's nice, you know? But it was all about the impact and purpose that you can make in your life. And it wasn't until I found that purpose. Yeah, my dad, you know, challenged me. And I walked in that recruiter's office and they challenged me. They all laughed when I said I wanted to become a Navy SEAL. I was like, okay, check. But I was also mature enough to sit back and realize that I wanted to do that, that I also wanted, yes, the the whitewater rafting guide thing was appealing because it's low stress, it's it's relaxing, and it, it, it's a cool thing. You know, I love the outdoors. I love the mountains. I love the river that, like, calms my soul. So that was kind of like what I was driven towards it. But also I've always been driven to, or, or drawn towards the military and law enforcement and firefighters because of the service and what they do and that purpose that you guys have is incredible. The purpose that law enforcement has is incredible. The purpose that the military has is incredible. And I was drawn to that. And when I realized that I could make an impact and I found what I truly felt God designed me to do, there was absolutely nothing that was going to stop me. Go back to what you said about Olympic athletes dropping out of the SEALs. I'm curious, you know, this is something that you would think they would have the best chance out of anybody. And maybe they actually do, you know, statistically. I mean, if you come in in shape, I'm sure you're going to do much better than if you come in overweight and out of shape. You may not even get the invitation. But, you know, why do these, why do certain high-level athletes struggle sometimes? It's, think about high-level college athletes and Olympic athletes. They train in these nice facilities. They have their schedule for their meet, for their meals and their workouts and their rest and their recovery and their diet and stretching. They have everything, right? The high-level ones. They have all that at their you know, disposal for the most part. And now you're in an environment where nobody is building you up. The instructors are beating you down. You are equal with everybody around you. It doesn't matter if you're enlisted or an officer. It doesn't matter if you grew up in this neighborhood or that neighborhood or if you're a foreign national. It, none of that matters. You are broken down to the lowest level and you are equal to everybody around you. Nobody is catering to you and nobody cares about what you need and want. All that matters is what you're going to do for the guys around you and how much effort you're going to actually put into it. So these guys get in these uncomfortable situations that they've never truly been in and then they break and they quit and they realize, you know what, maybe this isn't what I wanted to do. I'm curious, has anyone ever come back after quitting Buds the first time around? Yeah. So, for instance, a great uh, example is Mikey Monsoor. Uh, Mikey and Mark both had gone to Buds once before and quit, and they came back through the second time and made it, and they were phenomenal team guys. The stuff that they did in combat was truly remarkable. And so, hey, maybe it was an immaturity. And maybe they just realized, hey, I don't want it as much as I thought I wanted it. And then they go out to the regular fleet Navy and realize, oh, wow, this isn't what I want. I can be uncomfortable for a couple months. I can truly figure out if this is what I really want and go back and attack, which they did. They did absolutely phenomenal in buds, and they were amazing team guys. And so when those missions stop, how do you keep that desire that you had before because you knew what the what the finish line was. It was, I need to be ready for this thing. But when you get out of the fire service or you get out of the military, those missions stop. The war stops. But you and everyone else at Echelon Front seems to continue to grind 
the same way you did in the military? Like what drives that? Well, I just think about if I have to defend my, my wife and kids or if I have to defend somebody else, I've got to be in shape. I've got to be strong. I've got to be explosive. I have to be able to be able to neutralize the situation. Just because I'm not in the SEAL teams deploying anymore doesn't doesn't change the makeup of who I am. I'll always be a protector. I'll always seek out evil. And I'll never let evil triumph just because I'm not officially in the fight anymore. And also, I mean, I look at guys like my grandfather and my dad and my uncle who were in the military, you know, aunts and uncles that were in the military and uncles that were in law enforcement. I mean, one of my uncles is still in law enforcement and he's still fighting and he's, you know, he's in Stockton, California, which is a horrible area for crime. I mean, there's shootings every night there that they're dealing with. You know, he's in his 50s and he's in phenomenal shape and he's training and he's running and he's lifting because his life depends on it and his partner's life depends on it. I mean, if you if you don't care about yourself, at least look to the guy to your left and right or the girl to your left and right and say, you know what? I need to be able to give everything I've got for them. So what advice do you have for those that are frustrated in their organization? Then, like, what can you tell them that will help them re-engage? Build those relationships, find accountability partners, and keep pushing. This is not a short-term solution. To change a culture, it takes years. Legitimately takes years to change a culture within an organization if you don't have 100% buy-in. And the only way you're going to get buy-in is by building relationships so that you can influence. And then you need to show people why these changes are important. You need to educate people why these changes are important. Hey, guys, this is why we do this drill. Because in 2005, four firefighters were killed because they didn't do this. And that's why we're going to do it. And that's why we're going to train it over and over and over so it is so ingrained into your mind you don't have to think you can react because in the middle of a fire you don't have time to think like in the middle of a gunfight i don't have time to think i have to react and i react based off of my training